Hello, thank you for listening to this Aspen podcast, monitoring trends in liver profile, nutritional support, and growth in pediatric patients with intestinal failure treated with a mixed intravenous lipid emulsion at first. First being the Florida Intestinal Rehabilitation Support and Treatment Program at the Salaf Foundation Children's Hospital at Broward Health Medical Center. This podcast is brought to us by a grant from Fresenius Caddy. The research discussed in this podcast was accepted as an abstract for Aspen 20. As Aspen 20 became a virtual conference, we are pleased now to have the opportunity to learn more about this research. My name is Dr. Anita Nucci. I'm the chair of the Department of Nutrition at Georgia State University. I'm also the chair of the Aspen Pediatric Intestinal Failure section. I will be interviewing two of the abstract authors, Dr. Jessica Wasif and Dr. Deborah Duro about the medical and nutritional outcomes in children from their practice who received a small lipid as part of their nutrition treatment plan. They hypothesized that the use of a mixed intravenous lipid emulsion would improve liver function and allow for a greater provision of calories, which would subsequently result in growth acceleration. Hello, Dr. Wasif and Dr. Duro. Hello. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You compared liver function markers, energy and macronutrient intake, and anthropometric measures in 14 patients taken at, at the time that small lipid was initiated and again in May of 2019. Did your results support your hypothesis? So first, thank you so much for the introduction and giving us an opportunity to talk a little bit more about this study. So our results supported the hypothesis that lipid is an important component in TPN to reduce the incidence of IFALD, intestinal failure-associated liver disease. The goal was to measure long-term trends of liver function markers and such as AST, ALT, total bilirubin, and direct bilirubin, as well as measure trends in energy intake and trends in growth in our patients using SMOF lipid. So we measured trends rather than comparing to another lipid emulsion. And we just wanted to see if those liver markers and those growth parameters would improve over a long period of time. So going into the study, we did expect SMOF lipid to be hepatoprotective on the liver. Um, so after a mean time of 12 months on SMOF in our patients undergoing intestinal rehabilitation, we saw statistically significant decreases in total bilirubin, AST, ALT, and direct bilirubin. Um, and to see those changes, it took about three months to see those lasting changes in total bilirubin, and they stayed low over time. And with AST and ALT, we saw it took about six months to observe those changes, and they stayed the same throughout that part up until May. Um, so the second part of the study that you mentioned was in regards to energy and macronutrient intake. So small lipid is advantageous as we can use more than one gram per kilo in children without any hepatotoxicity to the liver. And that alone allows a higher concentration of nutrition and TPN at a time. Um, the lipids that we had used previously did not allow us to give those that high dose um, because it was hepatotoxic. And so we could never reach that goal of the 30% of total calories from lipids, which is the dietary recommendation for you and I and most people. So in using the small lipid, we reached the goal of reaching the 30% 30, 30 of calories from lipids, which allowed a higher concentration of calories at a time and allows us to decrease the hours per day delivering TPN using the same amount of calories, but at less hours. So we successfully decreased hours per day of TPN from 16 hours daily to 12. So that's the second part. So the third part we measured was growth. So we just wanted to make sure they were improving and we used these scores in order to measure this data. 
So we did observe improvements in most parameters like weight and height in all ages, as well as weight for length under two years of age. Uh, what we did see was uh, decreases in Z-score in the BMI, which is over two years of age. But I think that's explained more by the distribution of age from beginning to end of the study, because a lot of those patients transitioned from being yet less than two to over two. So um, they were all improving with the exception of the BMI, although weight for length. So that just is a little part about the study. Um, lastly, we measured micronutrient in levels in the patients every three months. Um, we observed no changes in the micronutrient deficiencies, and they were the same regardless of the type of lipid we incorporated. The most common deficiencies we saw were vitamin A, D, copper, and selenium. Super. Thank you so much. I have a couple of general questions, and then I'll ask you some specific questions about your results. Do you think that the management of patients undergoing intestinal rehabilitation varies between hospitals that are linked or not linked to a transplant center? And in, in particular, what I mean by this is how do you think that factor influences the management of parental nutrition and the IV lipid products that are chosen? Yes, uh, absolutely. I can take this question. Um, what we see here, especially in the state of Florida, is a variety of patients that I get as a second opinion that come to me for intestinal rehabilitation. Uh, our center is not linked to any uh, intestinal transplant program. Therefore, my approach might be completely different in a sense that I'm going to do everything I can to save this patient from transplant. And not just that, is try to optimize their quality of life and give uh, a good quality of life as possible for this family and these children. So I do see a variety of care among other centers. Patients to me come already with uh, found established uh, intestinal failure associated liver disease and with a misuse or a completely different approach with soy or very high doses of SMUF with no cycling, the TPN, which can all impair bilirubins and uh, liver profile. So yes, I think we had the data from actually PIFCON, uh, which was the consortium for pediatric intestinal failure consortium, a paper that was published in 2015 that showed among many centers, the ones that had a transplant program attached show an odds ratio of 6.56 of kids achieving enteral nutrition. One of the predictors factors was the fact that they were having care in a, in a center that had intestinal transplant. So it was difficult for those kids to achieve enteral autonomy. Therefore, the paper support the odds ratio for you to come off by enteral nutrition to achieve enteral autonomy is to have a care in a center that does not have intestinal transplant, multivisceral transplant programs attached. So I do think there is a bias in the care of patients that have the care on centers that have intestinal transplant. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Duro. What percentage of pediatric and the NICU population at your institution receives SMOF lipid as opposed to intralipid or omega-vent? Sure. The way is my protocol right now established here first at the Brower Health at Sala Foundation is any patient that we see that carries on the definition of intestinal failure, which is to be on TPN needed parental nutrition for more than 90 days, which most of the literature, you know, support. I start with them immediately, long-term parental nutrition on SMUF. I barely have been using any intralipids anymore based on soy. And SMUF, I use then in the beginning of the therapy and go forward because we can use, like Jessica, layout very well, 
more provisional of the calories, about 30% when we design the TPN can come from lipids. So you can use a dose of a two to up to 2.5 grams per kilo. In Omega Van, I only hold for patients that actually come to me with already established PN-associated liver disease with a direct bile more than two. So those patients, uh, when they come with this MUF or intralipids to my service, I do switch them to Omega Van. In my own service, I did not need to initiate anyone on Omega Van because so far from the patients we generate from the NICU that started on TPN here, ISMUF have been shown to be an excellent lipid to prevent actually PN-associated liver disease. I have a couple of questions related to essential fatty acid deficiency. Prior studies have suggested that small lipid at a dose of two grams per kilo per day is, is needed to prevent essential fatty acid deficiency. Is this the rationale that you use to determine your dosage, which was 30% of the parental nutrition calories for your study? And given that uh, in your results, your population received actually a bit less than two grams per kilo per day. So did that lack of essential fatty acid deficiency that you observed surprise you, particularly that it was, you know, many of the patients received the, um, well, the range of time that small flipid was received by your population was anywhere between two and 27 months. So this wasn't a surprising factor for us. So throughout the study, we carefully monitored this operation. We always measured the tri-intetrine ratio, and we never used less than one gram per kilo of the small flipid. So we've observed through this study that as long as we reach the goal of the proportion, like to make the goal of 30% of total calories from lipids and keep a balanced parental nutrition, which we define as uh, 60 to 70% carbohydrates, 10 to 20% protein, and 30% lipids, that we would not experience essential fatty acid deficiency. And our conclusion was correct. Um, so I think that essential fatty acid deficiency can come more from a proportion of total dietary intake rather than an exact dosage of more than two in the way that you would dose medication. And we were still, although we didn't reach two, like on average, we did always meet that 30% criteria and our average ended up being like 1.7, 1.8. So it is very close to that two grams per kilo per day. So um, in our opinion, we think it's more of a proportion and a balance rather than it has to be more than two grams per kilo. Understood. Great. Thank you. So the mean percent of calories from enteral nutrition in your population at the initiation of the small lipid and follow-up was about 40%, but the range uh, varied quite widely. I mean, if you reported between 9 and 127% at the initiation and between 11 and 66% at follow-up. Was your definition of total nutrition the estimated energy requirement? Um, yes. So the definition of total nutrition is the estimated energy requirements. Um, and we calculated this using the WHO and Schoenfeld equations. It varied widely in the beginning because our patients came from all over when they initiated the TPN and small lipid with us. So some of these patients were either starting TPN for the first time and received everything entirely, or they were being switched from a different lipid emulsion to SMOF and had very little enteral autonomy. So that's why those numbers range pretty wide in the beginning. They're a little bit more narrow at follow-up. Yes, understood. Thank you. So you were able to reduce, as you said earlier, the mean glucose infusion rate and the grams of protein per kilo per day, while the mean grams uh, per kilo per day of the small lipid was essentially the same at both time points. This sort of suggested to me that the percentage of calories from enteral nutrition increased over time, which makes sense as you treat them. Do you agree with that assumption, basically, and what effect do you think that enteral nutrition played in the reduction of the liver function markers that you observed? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I can take this question. So we see that the kids are much healthier when they don't develop a PN-associated liver disease, and therefore they are also in the process of adaptation and will tolerate more enteronutrition and definitely reducing the TPN, the GIR, which is another factor that can impair liver disease. So GIR, the lipid coming from a good source like SMUF, a mixed lipid with vitamin A and everything else we know inside, that help the liver to be healthier and those kids thrive much better, affording a better enterotolerance, I would say. So definitely decreasing the PN, cycling aggressively, and increasing the enteronutrition absolutely also, I think, protect the liver, absolutely, and uh, decrease the fact that, that they can lead into a parenteral nutrition-associated liver disease. Right. Thank you. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you observed some micronutrient deficiencies, vitamin A, vitamin D, copper, and selenium. What's your explanation for these deficiencies? Were they in that one participant who weaned from parental nutrition? So actually, we experience um, micronutrient deficiencies in a greater proportion in those weaned or weaning off um, parental nutrition versus those already on parental nutrition. Um, and there are some studies that back this theory that patients undergoing intestinal rehabilitation are at risk of developing at least one micronutrient deficiency, especially if transitioning off parental nutrition. And according to a paper that um, Dr. Yoro has authored, uh, this has been reported in patients with normal somatic growth as well. So it's something that you really have to test over time. It's not always a clinical diagnosis. Um, so this could be in part because the intrinsic nature of the disease leading to intestinal failure in children requiring intestinal rehabilitation. So usually in what we see, the prevalence of these deficiencies are higher than when children were receiving partial or full parental nutrition. So at the first program, we always make a point to monitor these micronutrients in patients undergoing intestinal rehabilitation, whether or not they're on parental nutrition, at least every three months. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, absolutely. I have one more question for you. So I understand you said previously you used the WHO or the Schofield equations with stress factors to determine the estimated energy requirements of your participants. These equations have been found to be a slightly overestimate of resting energy expenditure in healthy populations and somewhat of an underestimate in children who are underweight. Have you used indirect calorimetry in your population? So one wonderful question. Yes, we all know the indirect calorimeter is actually the gold standard um, to assess uh, calorie needs on children or anyone in, in humans. Although we do have this tool as an inpatient, outpatient, this was not available to us. And when the patient came to the hospital as an inpatient, usually they come as sick with a sepsis or suspect a catheter line infection. So that is not the best time to do the indirect calorimeter. So, and also because of the device we had here was a little bit outdated as well. We didn't have the canopy and the flow that we needed to measure in little ones. So, therefore, I just base all my calculations in the old-fashioned using Schofield and WHO. This is why I could not use indirect calorimeter, but I agree with you. It's the gold standard. And moving forward, I used to develop more the technology which we have and update it and uh, offerhand in the future. Yes, thank you. Excellent. Yes, we use what we have, don't we? <laughs> so that's, that's it. Thank you so much, Dr. Wasson and Dr. Duro, for joining us today. We also want to thank Presenius Cabby for providing us the opportunity to discuss this research. And as always, thank you, our audience, for listening to this Aspen podcast. That's it for this episode. Please return to the Aspen channel of SoundCloud often to listen to our newest podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on SoundCloud. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.